And now. It's the Rex of 79. In Tele-Hell. For our first subject this season, we're actually going to do something that we've never done before. But before we tell you what that is, we begin with a quick word about the concept of capturing success. Success is one of the most sought-after, non-physical items in all of existence. People spend their entire lives trying to chase after it, grab a piece of it, and, once they do... Try to hang on to it for dear life because the captor knows deep down that they were lucky to capture it once, but probably not so much a second time. This can be done in a number of variations on what is pretty much the same process. You have an idea, you develop the idea, you then feel confident enough to bring the idea to the masses in the hopes that they will share the same feelings about the idea that you do. If all goes as planned, you profit from that idea. If you don't, you don't. And you can either head back to the drawing board to try to attain success in your own right, or, if you prefer to be lazy, try to co-op the existing successes of others in an effort to be just enough of an alternative to success that you then become successful in your own right, even though critics will inevitably come out of the woodwork to dismiss you as a pale imitation of the original. Case in point... If you look up various documentaries on the making of the 1978 comedy classic National Lampoon's Animal House, you'd get a sense that, at best, the movie was supposed to be a low-budget comedy with a seeming little chance to break even at the box office. Suffice to say, the movie, which only had a budget of $3 million in 1978 money, wound up making over $120 million at the box office domestically that year, or $600 million when adjusted for inflation. And with moments like these, it's pretty easy to see why. Toga, toga, toga. Then as of this moment, they're on double secret prediction. The issue here is not whether we took a few liberties with our female party guests. We did. See if you can guess what I am now. I'm a zit. Get it? Could I buy some pot from you? Oh, boy, is this great. They talked the bar. The whole fucking bar. <laughs> Suffice to say... Animal House might have been one of those cases where the expression lightning in a bottle could easily be personified. So much so that it wouldn't be too long until the TV networks tried to come up with their own versions of it in an effort of striking while the iron was hot. And then comes the crazy part. As it turns out, this was one of those ultra-rare instances where all three broadcast TV networks each had the same thought. How can we cash in on the success of something that seemed to have happened right out of nowhere? As it turns out, the answer would be revealed in the winter of 1979, when not one, not two, but three separate college-related sitcom adaptations that tried to leech off the success of Animal House made their way to TV screens. Which brings us to that first that we promised you. The first being that we are starting this season off by reviewing all three of these shows in this one 
episode. And since ABC held the reins as the number one network at that point in time, it was only natural for their Animal House copycat to be as close to the real thing as possible. Saturday is the premiere of Delta House, when Blotto finds his feet and the Dean has a plan. How'd you like to make a little wager in next week's game? But Blotto won't play ball. I hate uniforms. Look, Buster, you'll play for favor. Move over, Super Bowl. Here comes Blotto on Delta House. Delta House was the official spinoff to the main movie albeit severely scaled down for a TV audience in a number of ways. Granted, there was no way down here that they were ever going to get John Belushi to reprise his role as Bluto for a TV series. Largely because he was currently preoccupied with one of the few successes that NBC had at that moment. But that was a given. Nevertheless two figures who were instrumental in the making of the movie did their best to duplicate the movie's success on a TV budget, as the legendary Ivan Reitman and Maddie Simmons would assume responsibility for giving the Delta Tau Chi fraternity some new life on television, complete with the knowledge that getting the entire band back together was all but an impossibility. We already mentioned the lack of a Belushi in these proceedings, but also notably missing from this adaptation would be roughly 70% of the movie's actors, probably because they all still had careers worth building on. But just because most of the original actors weren't around to play those characters doesn't mean the characters weren't going to exist, period. They just needed some comparable AAA ballplayers to fill in the gaps. Players to help assist the only people from the movie who agreed to play ball for the TV version including John Vernon as Dean Wormer. Find me a way to revoke Delta's charter. James Widows as Hoover. Uh, I state your name. I state your name. Bruce McGill as D-Day. And the inimitable Stephen First as Flounder. Oh boy, is this great! <laughs> and as far as keeping up with the tone of the original movie goes, Reitman and Simmons managed to secure the services of the movie's writers, Harold Ramis, Doug Kenny, and Chris Miller. But only for the show's pilot, since two of them would soon be busy working on the movie Caddyshack. Other notable writers include a pair of brothers named Michael and Stephen Tolkien, Elias Davis, and David Pollock, among others. But more notably than them, an up-and-coming writer for the very magazine that originated the movie who, in spite of his presence already being known around here in the most in-name-only sense, twice, would go on to do much better things down the line. I speak, of course, about the one and only John Hughes. of all that needed to change. One particular change was needed in order for the show to become palatable to a TV audience. Just as a reminder to those who haven't seen the movie in recent years, here's a little more of exactly why people originally flocked to see this movie. Assume the position. Thank you, sir. May I have another? Greg, is anything happening yet? My arm's kind of tired. Greg, if you're not even going to try, I'm just going to stop. Baffles me is why Fawn would have gone out with boys like that. It reminded me of criminals. Greg, honey, is it supposed to be this soft? 
Without sounding too much like a prude, in spite of some of the scenes in the movie being tamed by today's standards, the movie was raunchy for its day. And in the 1970s, TV was still trying to recover from the federally mandated family viewing hour that was outlawed in 1977. And you can hear more about that in episode 40. Unfortunately, even though the hour was deemed unconstitutional, the ideals behind the hour still lingered strong among viewers of the day. Which, in turn, leads to probably the number one reason why the most faithful cash-in on Animal House was doomed from the start. The very fact that this Animal House had to go through more sanitation than a Purell factory in order to see the light of day, and all because the ABC network felt it was a show worthy of airing at its earliest possible hour for prime time. In other words, there's going to be a lot less of this. Holy shit! And a lot more of this. Oh, goody, goody, gumdrops and other family hour expressions of delight. So for now, let's get to class on what I'd like to call Rip Off 101. January 18th. 1979. Disco reached the peak of its pandemonium. The gas crisis of the 1970s was just about to do the same thing. And at 8 p.m., 7 p.m. Central, the gates of Faber College reopened. restored statue of the college's founder, Emil Faber, who you might remember was used as the hood ornament for the Deltas at the end of the movie. Oh, and uh, by the way, this will be one of those times when comparing the source material is going to be inevitable. We apologize in advance. The show does its best to recreate the pomp and circumstance that the original Elmer Bernstein soundtrack gave the movie, which, unfortunately, is just for this one episode because all other episodes afterwards will have this jaunty tune. the least of our problems, as D-Day is performing a number of moving violations and running afoul of the police at the same time, all under the watchful eye of Dean Wormer, which officially gives me all the reason in the underworld to play this clip over and over whenever he, or anybody else playing a Dean, gets annoyed. Robot house! But getting to the matter at hand, Act 1 begins with the current whereabouts of Belushi's character as stated by Dean Wormer. We got that animal, Butoski. He's the army's problem now. He was the worst. But we'll get the rest of them. One by one. No more lime jello in my bathtub. No more herds of grazing sheep. And the quadrangle. And here we go again with something that was perfectly good the way it was, getting ruined, I, I mean, enhanced, by the use of a laugh track. <laughs> because it's not like the original source material was based on a comedy, right? That distraction aside, 
we soon get to find out about John Belushi's low-cost TV-friendly equivalent. No, can't be. It's true. Jim Blutarski. That animal has a brother. Transfer denied. Admission canceled. Unacceptable. Official parking validation. Official. Where's my big stamp? Yes. Jim Blutarski, who, ironically enough, would not be played by real-life brother Jim Belushi, because, as it turns out, his acting career was just getting started with two failed sitcoms of his own in 1978 and 79, respectively. In spite of preemptively kicking the younger Bluto out of school, the Deltas seem ready to welcome him in anyway. Why I am writing is because of my little brother Jim. He is transferring to Faber on October 15th. And I want you guys to take good care of him. The kid is definitely Delta material. (laughs) Fraternally Bluto. P.S. If you see Dean Wormer, tell him to eat my socks. And as the featured extras gear up for Bluto's brother, Flounder has some more pressing issues to worry about. I got a poli sci paper due tomorrow. Son, a Delta can't say, I can't. I can't? Flounder, nothing is impossible to the man who won't listen to reason. We now check in with the other half, a.k.a. the snobs at the Omega House, who, despite having their cast cut down to the bone still gets to show off what kinds of Hitler youth they are. The Students for a More Fair World Committee have submitted a petition to the Interfraternity Council charging that Omega House refuses to admit Jewish people, colored people, poor people, people with pimples, people who dress funny, people who look funny, and folk singers. All those in favor of changing our membership policies? (coughs) All those opposed? No! may not be seeing this, but trust me, they do the salute. You know, the Heil thing. Anyway, we later find out that Discount Niedermeyer is going head-to-head against Flounder in a poli-sci debate, but time is a factor. So it's here where we get to meet our first deviation from the original movie, a guy who sells him term papers. Swiney! Flounder here needs a poli-sci paper. I win. Uh, it's supposed to be tomorrow morning. I have here a 12-pager on the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk out of the University of Michigan, 1960. It's only been used twice and never at Faber. Guaranteed a B+. Plus. For $17.50, I deliver it typed with your name on it. Problem solved. Let's celebrate by trying to convince a bunch of co-eds to show up at a party during an era where cell phones, internet, and SVU doesn't exist yet. Which also makes me wonder if I should have put a content warning in at the top of the show. Say, hi. Listen, I'm the Revtone cosmetic rep for this area, and I was wondering if perhaps you'd like a year's supply of hairspray. I'd love it. Well, why don't you drop by the Delta house tonight about 8 o'clock? We're having a Revtone cosmetic clinic. Are you girls freshmen? Mm-hmm. You're to report to the uh, Delta house at 8 o'clock tonight for compulsory orientation review. Allen Ginsberg and Lawrence Ferlinghetti are going to be reading their new poems at the Delta house. Why don't you fall by around 8? It's going to be ultimately cool. Great. I'll chill some Keanu. And so the party kicks off with a number of callbacks to the movie, 
including ample use of the song Shout, minus Otis Day. And crashing something through a window for absolutely no reason. As the Deltas eagerly await for the arrival of Bluto's brother, Blotto. Bluto, Blotto. I wish we could call the whole thing off. Especially once we take a look at the party which I can only describe as a TV-friendly furry convention with a dash of our branch offices in Sodom and Gomorrah. And as the partygoers do their impression of seizure victims, along comes Blotto and... Hi, I'm Jim Blatarski. Cold, frosty, Jim. (laughs) Gee, no thanks, I don't drink. Um... If you guys will show me to my room, I'd like to look through the course catalog. Sure, Jim. I'd hate to think that Bluto's little brother is a wimp. Act two starts with Dean Wormer doing the same thing that John Vernon did in all of his movies. Get to be comically menacing. Barred forever from intercollegiate athletics. The first ROTC cadet to receive a full military court-martial. Drunkenness, public nudity. I could go on, but I won't. Tell me, how did you ever get accepted into Faber with a record like this? Because Faber's the worst college in the state. (laughs) Students like you who spoil the bottom of the barrel for everyone else. Hey, come on. I'm trying. You think it's easy being as crazy as I am? (laughs) And just as one bumbling schlub leaves, another one enters. I've just read your paper on the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. Are you aware that it's word for word like an essay by Arnold Toynbee, one of the foremost historians of our age? I I guess great minds think alike. (laughs) Knock it off, son. I could fail you right now, but I'm not going to do that. First, I'm going to prove that you couldn't possibly have written this paper. Tomorrow, you'll be taking the Nerdlinger Political Science Association Advanced Achievement Examination. Nerdlinger, you say? Your bra bomb better work, Nerdlinger. Okay. (gasps) Corey! Robot House! As I realize that I haven't gained one ounce of Simpsons-related self-control over the summer, Flounder now has a major test to study for. Can the Deltas cheat for him like they did the first time? Swiney, we're going to have to give him a smart pill. What's a smart pill? Okay, okay. You think he needs a whole one? Half ought to do it. No, 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 a whole one. I need it. I swear it. He's right. Half might do it, but look at him. Let's give him a whole one. So, fake otter and the prototype of Mr. Eaglebauer from Rock and Roll High School gives Flounder what they call a smart pill. Except it's not really a smart pill, rather, a laxative pill. And while I would question why a frat brother would do that to another frat brother, I am reminded of this line from the movie. You can't do that to our pledges. Only we can do that to our pledges. So, fair's fair there. Meanwhile, non-Belushi gets a lay of the land only to be intercepted by the Legion of Douche. Pigs throw their garbage on the ground. Now pick it up. You're kidding. I don't kid, mister. Now pick it up. I've got my eye on you, Blutarski. And just as non-Belushi wishes that Niedermeyer got killed by his own troops, he also realizes where his roots lay. 
which he does by uprooting a tree with his bare hands, chugging an entire pitcher of beer, and fully embracing his... Destiny! Destiny! No escaping! That's for me! Destiny! Destiny! No escaping! That's for me! Tough day, Jim. <laughs> that guy in Niedermeyer says one more word to me. <laughs> now you're really beginning to sound like Pluto's brother. No, that would have been Jim Belushi. However, we do feel the need to give props to our substitute, Bluto, and his name is Josh Mostel. And if that last name sounds familiar, let me give you a tiny hint as to why. You miserable, cowardly, wretched little caterpillar. Don't you ever want to become a butterfly? Don't you want to spread your wings and flap your way to glory? That's right. He's the son of the original Max Bialystok, Zero Mostel. And to be completely fair to Mostel the Jr., he's put in quite the resume over the past 50 years and counting. But quite honestly, the notion of him replacing John Belushi in Animal House makes about as much sense as him replacing Nathan Lane in a revival of the producer's musical. Just because you have the talent, and deservedly so, doesn't mean it's going to fit everywhere that you go. <laughs> nice going, Jim! Why didn't you tell us you had a run-in with Dean Worm? Meanwhile, Flounder seems to be in high spirits, at least for one fleeting moment. Oh, I got that again. I got the nerd liquor cup. Hey, Dorfman, you're not getting the nerd liquor award. What are you talking about? Dean Wormer knows he cheated on his exam. I did not cheat. I took a smart pill. <laughs> a smart pill? Well, you must have taken a retarded pill too. Hey, whoa, hey, whoa, hey, whoa, hey, whoa, hey, whoa. Yes, I know, it was the 70s. The R word was probably as common as saying hello back then. But still, not the right time or place. Anyway, Hoover reads a letter that pretty much spells doom for Flounder. Kent Dorfman is hereby disqualified from the Nerdlinger competition. He is a known cheat and is never again to be trusted in any position of responsibility or employment. His parents will be notified and a copy of this letter will be placed in his permanent record. And Douglas C. Niedermeyer is now the official winner. Sincerely, Dean Vernon Wormer. A sad ending to the first episode of a show that was meant to capitalize on the success of a smash hit comedy. Well, I guess it's all over. What? Over? Did you say over? Nothing is over until we decide it is. Was it over when the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor? Hell no! German? Forget it, he's rolling. And it ain't over now. Because when the going gets tough... The tough get going! Who's with me? Let's go! Come on! Of course it's not over. Naturally, the Deltas try to get their revenge, even if it means paying more lip service to the movie by reenacting the sneaking around scene that they did with the dead horse, right down to the music cue that Elmer Bernstein composed for it. Only instead of a dead horse, the Deltas are in search of the Nerdlinger Cup. Wormer left the Nerdlinger Cup locked in a safe? Talk about paranoid. We take the whole safe, crack it open later. 
We'll need some gear. Let's go. Which they do by using a car to help prove one of Isaac Newton's theories. Or possibly Archimedes, or, I don't know, Mr. Wizard? Who cares? Point is, they tie one end of the rope to the car, and they tie another end to the safe. Of course, hilarity ensues. The Deltas try to bring Imitation Pinto back down to Earth by being counterweights in the car, which they do. But before that happens, Flounder actually finds two brain cells to rub together. They're gone! Look, guys, I got it! The Nerdlinger cop! It was right here! Cap, you're the only thing heavy enough to weigh the car down! Just in time for the cops to show up and let hilarity ensue one more time. Hey, boys, come on down from up there! Officer, we'll be right out. No problem. Glad to oblige. Okay, let's go. Officer, we'll be right down. The show wraps up with Dean Wormer getting the kind of comeuppance that he will wind up receiving for the next 13 weeks. Where is my safe? Um. And why is it so dark in here? You know I like plenty of light. Was a campus police want us to pay for a new police car? Police car? Never mind a police car. Somebody stole my car last night. Robot house. And while the dean quells down the vein popping out of his forehead. Flounder proudly drinks out of his trophy, all fat, drunk, and stupid. And at the same time, Lotto is welcomed into the frat with open arms. And that's pretty much Delta House. Or at least the first episode of it. The subsequent shows that aired include a number of changes, both big and small. We already mentioned the theme song adjustment and the lack of Ramus, Kenny, and Miller in the writing room. But perhaps more notably, the addition of another cast member slash ally to the Deltas for the rest of the show's run. A then 21-year-old, ice-cold piece of white gold named Michelle Pfeiffer, who played a co-ed simply known as... The bombshell. And boy, was she. I'm having trouble with the fall of the Roman Empire. I can't figure out how the Roman Empire fell. Do you care if it falls? What? The Roman Empire? Fuck it. <laughs> but despite the actual modest success that the show had in the ratings, Delta House still got foreclosed upon after 13 episodes. But not for the reasons you think. Reasons we'll get to in the Nine Circles. Uh, oh. Ooh. Um. Of course, we did say that there were two other Animal House ripoffs that we needed to cover. And to call them anything else but ripoffs would be an insult to the term. Hey, brothers and sisters, it's about a frat house and a sorority house that turns into a madhouse. The preview of Brothers and Sisters, Super Bowl Sunday on the new NBC. We're coming With a special preview of Co-Ed Fever. The boys just hit campus and now the girls are going to hit on the boys. Why don't we all go over to Dean McKee's house and glue his wife to the ceiling? Don't. My advice to you, start drinking heavily. Better listen to him, Flounder. He's in pre-med. 
Our next semester of sin in Ripoff 101 begins after the break. Favor College, 1962. The brothers of Delta House have a problem. The dean wants them expelled, the other frat houses want their charter revoked, and the mayor wants them dead. How did this happen? Well, it had something to do with the stolen exam, the toga party, the food fight, the dean's wife, the mayor's daughter, and the dead horse. But then in 1962, they just didn't understand the concept of independent study. National Lampoon's Animal House. Monday night at 8, only on Channel 11. This week on Telehealth's premium content of the damned. The signs say things like peace and the peace symbol and join the conversation. Join the conversation? That's the most corporate message of all time. They might as well be holding signs that say we are all the core demographic. But, very good. The only way to listen to Telehealth's premium content of the damned is by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash podcast For just a few bucks a month, you can listen to our premium content and get some swag along the way. Once again, that's patreon.com slash podcast. Now at new low prices. And now, back to this week's torture. Time now for our second lesson in trying to capture success. This one took place at a network that needs no introduction around here. But you know I gotta do one anyway. I'm going to make a promise to myself that I'm going to keep my NBC bashing to a bare minimum this year. Satan knows I've already done more than enough damage there to last me a few eternities. But they do play a role in this part of the story. In spite of how bad things were for the Peacock, I I mean Trapezoid N that year, the network did have an ace up its sleeve just in case things started to go south for them too soon. That ace would be the broadcast of a certain big football game that they aired that January. Preceding announcement furnished as a public service by the National Football League. An exciting first half has come to an end at the Super Bowl in Miami as the Steelers lead the Dallas Cowboys 21 to 14. As is the case, whenever a highly rated TV event takes place, the network that airs it is none too eager to use the potentially big audience that the event is capable of having to help springboard some of the new shows that they plan for the mid-season. But even more lucrative than simply promoting your shows during the biggest TV event of the year, and also realizing there may still be some time in primetime left to fill after the game, was taking advantage of the sizable audience that would linger on when the game was over. We'll put a pin in the problem with that for just a moment. But first, let's talk about graduating from a different kind of school. Sunday, Monday, happy days. Tuesday, Wednesday, happy days. Although he really has nothing to do with this part of the story, a number of people who learned at the foot of the great Gary Marshall are instrumental in this one. 
in particular, Bob Bruner and Arthur Silver, the former of whom was instrumental in the development of the character of Arthur Fonzarelli, even going so far as to coin the immortal nickname of Fonzie, or the Fonz. On the flip side of the coin, however, Bruner was also responsible for a piece of media terminology that has remained to this very day, thanks to an episode of the show that he wrote. Here we go, Fonz! I'm heading for the ramp! But nobody's perfect. Arthur Silver had a similar trajectory, not only writing and producing episodes of Happy Days, but also being a durable member of the Marshall payroll by lending a hand to the early seasons of Laverne and Shirley. And because both of these TV shows were Paramount TV productions, the two of them would team up and also take with them some of Marshall's other protégés in the writer's room and director's chairs to come up with their own version of Animal House. And on that note... It's time to add another new word to your showbiz vocabulary. Legal distinction. Say you want to do your own version of something, but you don't have the wherewithal to actually do it. In this case, Animal House and everything attached to it was the property of Universal Pictures, but the people producing this TV version was Paramount. Paramount would have to come up with a version of Animal House that was similar to the original product, but just different enough so that Universal wouldn't sick high-priced attorneys on anybody. Hence, Paramount needed to make a legally distinct version of Animal House so nobody would get sued. This would fall under a number of categories, like the action taking place in present day versus the early 1960s, where the college campus would take place, the names of the characters involved, maybe throw in a little diversity, and of course, have a completely different title to your program. Bruner and Silver did exactly that. Instead of the action taking place at the fictional Faber College, they decided to name it Larry Crandall College. I'm guessing is an inside joke to someone they knew. Instead of calling the frat houses Delta and Omega, the slobs and the snobs would occupy the same house. In this case, the house of Pi New, leading to some interfraternal squabbling. Instead of actors who would eventually become household names, the best that the show could do on NBC's third-place budget was old-timey movie star William Winden in the Dean Wormer role, the son of Jack Lemmon as one of the frat guys, and also the lady who would eventually shoot J.R. Ewing. It was you, Kristen, who shot J.R. But for the sake of staying one step ahead in legal distinction, the show wasn't just going to be about fraternity life and rivalries. For there was another side to the Greek alphabet on a college landscape. The show decided to have the rival house not be a bunch of upper-class Hitler youth, but rather... The opposite sex. Yep. This wouldn't just be an interfraternity battle among pledges, but also a battle between fraternity brothers and sorority sisters. Put them both together, and you've got brothers and sisters. Not to be confused with the Sally Field family drama of the same name. In spite of ABC's Delta House premiering three nights earlier, NBC was so confident in their ripoff, I, I mean, homage, I, I mean, adaptation of a college comedy hit that they decided to air the first episode right after the biggest event in all of television, which we'll now unpin because, as we mentioned, there was a slight problem with just exactly when this show would air. 
It seems hard to believe now, but there was once a time when the biggest football game of the year was actually played during the daylight hours. Before the network that aired it would resume with their full prime time programming for the evening. In fact, just one year earlier, CBS would have the honor of having the first big game take place within those hours. NBC, however, did not follow suit the following year, as they and the football people decided to have the kickoff take place in the 4 p.m. hour. Meaning that after all was said and done, the new show premiering right after the big game will be kicking off at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Far earlier than the time slot that Delta House premiered at, but even more so, with far more people watching. Especially those of a younger demographic. And with that being said, what would college be without a little bit of cheating to help make the grade? We regret to inform you that the first episode of this program, the one that aired after that big football game, is unfortunately nowhere to be found online. But even if we did find it, it would probably be unfair to use that one to review anyway, since its lead-in just happened to be, oh, I don't know, the biggest event of the year in television. So, to play boss's advocates, I think the fair thing to do in this case is to play the first episode that aired during the series' regular day and time slot, its second overall. That, and we also feel that there's really no reason to further introduce anybody, since everybody is either going to be a clone, an offshoot, or just different enough from the Animal House characters that we'll pretty much figure out who everybody's supposed to be anyway. With all of that in mind... January 26th, 1979. The Dukes of Hazard would make its debut on another network. Former Vice President Nelson Rockefeller would die from a heart attack, but I'm sure that's just a coincidence. And at 8.30, 7.30 Central, we transfer from Faber College to Larry Crandall College, where we get to see a legally distinct life on campus. Instead of the Faber College March, we get some public domain use of Beethoven while we see the upper crust of Pine New in a constant state of studying. All the while, we go to a separate area of the house simply known as Le Dump, where we get to see our less classy frat brothers do their own version of studying. At the same time, we get to see the opening credits, and just how shameless a photocopy it is to a show that just aired three days earlier. But again, different enough so that nobody raises any red flags. We don't get a cop chase on motorcycle like D-Day did, but not unlike D-Day splashing mud on discount Niedermeyer, we do have the slobs running afoul of the snobs, up to and including a pair of snobs getting their picnic ruined by one of the slobs all set to the tune of Roll Over Beethoven. Some would say they're trying too hard not to be like Animal House. I'd say they're not trying hard enough. Act 1 begins with... Oh, I'm sorry, the frat seems to be watching Bosom Buddies by mistake, even though the show wouldn't debut until the following year. All kidding aside, the head slob, played by Jack Lemon's son, Chris, has plans for the evening. Okay, come on, Ronaldo, we gotta go pick up the dates. Dates? You guys got dates? You didn't think to get me one, did you? Consider yourself lucky, Zip. You see, we're stuck with these girls. 
Yeah, yeah, we got a couple of gorgeous dates, but you get to pick from a bevy of beauties. Yes, Sippy, it's a 60s party. Relive those fabulous days of yesteryear. <laughs> Remember miniskirts? Not even Tricky Dick could forget. Free love. I love cheap dates. <laughs> Which brings us to a reminder that not only was this the 1970s, but the movie that they were trying to capitalize on had their own fair share of moments with promiscuity. You got Belushi spying on topless pillow fights, Marion Ravenwood sleeping with a guy from Invasion of the Body Snatchers, even Tim Matheson scoring pity points from a fake relationship with a dead girl. But those weren't exactly the central points of the movie. Those were just there to hold the audience's attention. Of course, this was a primetime TV series trying to leech off of that, so I can't imagine everything being on the same level here. As we see the Arnold Horshack of the group, named Zipper, trying to make the moves on the girl who would shoot JR. That's good, because here's the plan. We go to my room. Forget it, Zipper, I've got a date. Whoever he is, I'm better. He's a D student. I'm a D student, what's in a letter? He's handsome. He'll break your heart, baby. He's right Continues to ensue as Zipper then tries his luck with one of the more snobby sorority girls. Oh, 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 nice legs, Mary Lee. Nah, they're stunning, you little fungus. And strike two as we now see Zipper try with somebody that I can only assume we should have met in the pilot, or she could be a totally random girl. Who knows? And who cares? Hi, uh, you remember me? Zipper contemplates spending the rest of his life as a manifesto-writing incel. Along comes the dean. Oh, I'm sorry. I mean president and owner of the school. Yeah, that's the ticket. To break up the shenanigans and also provide another plot line. Now, my little girl, Charlene here. What Charlene wants is a fine, old-fashioned, all-American good time. Well, don't you worry none, sir. She's in good hands, sir. <laughs> oh, not my hands, sir. <laughs> meant that uh, I'll see she has a good time without having too good a time, sir. My Harlan will take all the responsibility. All right, all right. The job is yours, son. You just take good care of my little girl. Something else that happened in Animal House that's worth comparing here? In the movie, Pinto, a.k.a. Tom Hulse, a.k.a. Young Amadeus, is seen taking advantage of the mayor's underage daughter. There's something I have to tell you. I lied to you. I've never done this before. I was drunk. okay, Larry. Neither have I. And besides, I lied to you, too. Oh, yeah? What about? I'm only 13. But at 8.30, 7.30 Central, you have to make sure that the daughter of a dignitary is of proper age. Otherwise, you're just going to get a lot more of this. There's Hanson with Dateline in this year. Uh-huh. And we're doing a story on adults who try to meet... Young teens online for some reason. I don't want cameras. You can leave right now. Well, I'm going to be in trouble once I go. Uh, well, I was going to say, think of the children, but thanks for throwing a curveball. Anyway, the president's daughter immediately lets loose, much to the chagrin of one of the more uptight frat brothers, played by comedian and future host of the 1987 Truth or Consequences, Larry, not Harry, but Larry, Anderson. Having a good time, Charlie? No. Good, good. Let's go look at the trophy. I want to meet some boys. Uh, Sugar Puss, could I talk to you for a minute? Not now. I'm talking to Charlene. Uh, He'll only be a minute, dear. (laughs) Harlan, this music is making me warm. We'll drink some ice water, man. 
talking not. I'm talking kissy pool. <laughs> oh, my. Uh, no, I have a responsibility towards you. Holy, and I said kissy pool. Meanwhile, Zipper laments on just how alone he is in this world. No She's a bitch. That is until... You're a girl. Oh, it's nice of someone to notice. Oh, I hope you don't mind my touching you. I don't mind. Here, I'll prove it. Do it some more. You know, it's always been a fantasy of mine to rob someone. You know, my father would kill me if he knew I was here. Oh, who cares? What, does he run the place or something? Uh, we should discuss this some other time, sir. I know that you're very busy. Like I said, comparisons with the source material will be inevitable. There is something I've always wanted to try, but I never had the nerve. Oh, have the nerve. <laughs> Please don't let anything go wrong. I'm going to need a feather and something to lie on. <laughs> And again, a reminder that this show aired at 8.30, 30 Central, and Mountain. So, I'm hoping this feather stuff is a lot cleaner than advertised, as not Dean Wormer shows up again to pick up his daughter. And sure enough... Hey, what a great feeling, huh, Ronaldo? For once, somebody's in trouble, and it's not us. Yeah, I know what you mean. I would just hate to be the guy caught with Crandall's daughter tonight. <laughs> I didn't think I'd be paying this show any compliments, but congratulations, brothers and sisters. You actually managed to show off an even less dignified portrayal of Native Americans than Saved by the Bell would do a decade later. Zach Morris is trash. Act 2 begins with Zipper lamenting on having the time of his life. That is, until he realizes who it is that he's having that time of his life with. Zipper, your squaw is Charlene Crandall. Charlene Crandall. I know. Name mean anything to you? I think it means we're in a lot of trouble if that's Larry Crandall's wife. (laughs) She's his daughter. Well, that's good because I love her. So, while the boys carry around somebody whose state of consciousness is highly questionable at this time, the president is presenting a presentation for a new stadium to a group of investors. When suddenly Zipper barges in. What do you want? Hi, Mr. Crandall. You don't mind if I call you Larry, do you? <laughs> okay, okay, Larry. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. Slow your roll there, Zipper. NBC could only make room for one guy named Larry this season. And somehow that show wound up one of their bigger hits that year. Well, hello, Larry. But for the first time this season, I digress. The boys are trying to bring the daughter back, but Zipper, being the show's resident comic relief, couldn't help but be fascinated by, of all things, a scale model replica of the proposed new stadium. Which also makes me wonder if he'll also be fascinated with dangling car keys. Look, a little coliseum. Little trees. Little referees. (laughs) 
After messing up the replica of the stadium, the three of them continues to transport the daughter through a series of distraction-related gags that even the three Stooges would find a little lame-brained. Not unlike the Stooges, though, they eventually get found out. Lawrence, I think there's someone in your closet. What? Yeah. <laughs> you wanna listen to this joke? Listen, Dean, sit down. You don't know your limit. No. This, of course, leads to the fraternity getting a good talking to from President Dean, or whatever his name is. I really don't care by this point. It is a good thing that I booted your mother out years ago so she'd never see you like this. I said, do you get it? No, I don't get it. You are going to get it this time. You and me are going to have ourselves a little showdown. I'll talk. You listen for a change. I shall be awaiting for you upstairs. All right, now let me tell you boys something. When I come back down these stairs, I want to see the responsible party sitting right here in this chair. Because I'm going to eat him alive. <laughs> Naturally, the boys scramble to play hot potato with the blame on this. Sure enough, the uptight snob walks right into his new position as scapegoat. When old weasel face comes down here, you boys just stay in the background and I'll handle everything. <laughs> so... Ah, hello, Mr. Weasel, sir. Or Mr. Crandall, sir. You must be the responsible party. Yes, sir. I don't care what they told you. Whatever it was, forget it. Uh, it was all my doing. And on a better caliber of TV show, that would have been the perfect place to end the episode and roll the credits. Except we get one more scene that actually punishes the other frat boys. There I was with Larry Crandall's fingers around my throat when you guys stepped in and put your neck in my noose. <laughs> you see, being good paid off. You were hardly punished. Hardly punished? You guys stood up for a friend. You got it wrong, Harlan. We stood up for you. Doesn't quite have the same ring to it as double secret probation, does it? On the other hand, if everybody is punished for messing around with the president's daughter, that should include Zipper too, right? Isn't friendship wonderful? And so concludes the second semester of Animal House ripoff shows. Even if the show had a giant football game acting as its initial jumping-off point, it, too, would wind up getting its charter revoked after 13 episodes in the spring of 1979. But again, not for the reasons you'd think. We'll get to that soon, I promise. But we did say that there were three of these shows. And even though there's only about two minutes worth of footage in this last show that's available, we kind of feel the need to talk about it anyway. So now... Very briefly, we're going to go over CBS's attempt to cash in on something whose well was already running dry after two trips. Like we said, the Eyeball Network suddenly found itself battling back and forth with ABC to see who could truly declare themselves the number one network of 1979. And not unlike their competitors, they too invested in new mid-season programming that would take a page or two from the Fred Silverman playbook of shows that had broad appeal, even if it meant lowering the bar a little. 
That theory will be put to the test when CBS put on their own college comedy created by Martin Razanoff, Michael Elias, and Frank Shaw. Only this time around, instead of the show being based on dueling fraternities or inner squabbling between members, the plot for this show was a little more simple. An all-girls university would allow men to join the campus for the first time in its history. And unlike the other two shows, the house would actually be overseen by a house mother. But she was one of those hip and cool types who just so happens to be elderly. Hilarity ensues once more, thus resulting in a case of co-ed fever. And now, stay tuned for a special preview of a brand new comedy series, Co-Ed Fever. Perhaps because the other networks face problems with the time slots where the other college courses will be broadcasting from, CBS decided to be proactive when it came to when its own college show would debut. As it turned out, the network didn't have a football-sized big event up its sleeve, but it still had a formidable contender. The network television premiere of the movie... Rocky. Which ran two and a half hours long with commercials, leaving CBS with a half hour to spare before the local news. Their logic was similar to NBC's. Premiere a new show after a big event, and success would come naturally. Not only that, but with the show debuting, or in this case, previewing at such a late hour, there was a distinct possibility that they could get away with the jokes that the other two shows seemed to lack. And so... February 4th, 1979. The Western Conference beat the Eastern in that year's NBA All-Star Game. The movie Rocky just made its TV debut. And at 10.30... 9.30 Central, CBS's hopes to successfully duplicate the Animal House formula was introduced with quite possibly the worst TV theme song of all time. And oh yeah, you're going to hear every last second of it. Dear Mom and Dad, I'm fine. How are you? School's okay. There's not much new. My check this month didn't go too far. I lost my books. I wrecked a car. There are men on campus. They started this fall. But don't worry, Dad. They're across the hall. I'm giving trigonometry the old college try. I study every night with this real cute guy. We met in the laundromat by the machines. We lost track of time and shrunk our jeans. Things are better than they were last year. It takes a lot for me to say this, but right here and right now, I officially forgive Holly Shore for everything he has ever done in his career. And that includes his Fox sitcom. No, 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 no. Don't you dare play another bar of that song. I mean, I know the 70s weren't exactly known for their subtlety, but that theme song can easily and handily not only replace the dog whistle in terms of annoying sounds, 
but the tune could probably lure those same dogs off a cliff. Whoever came up with that theme song, take a bow because you just composed Hell's latest ringtone. So, a tip of the hat to... Alan and Marilyn Birdman. Wait a minute. They wrote songs for a lot of big movies and TV shows. They wrote The Way They Were for Barbara Streisand. They wrote the theme songs to Maud, Alice, and Good Times? These guys were good, and they wrote this? My check this month didn't go too far. I lost my books. I wrecked the car. There are men on I guess it could be worse. I mean, it's not like they dragged in a even more talented third wheel to help smooth things out, right? Let's have a very nice welcome for a very nice, great gentleman and a wonderful musician, Henry Mancini. Henry, it's nice to have you with us. <laughs> don't don't fuck with me with that information alright Henry Mancini was a goddamn saint in the recording industry he did the theme songs to Peter Gunn the Pink Panther the NBC mystery movie What's happening, what's happening now, Remington Steele, and motherfucking Newhart, and you have the unmitigated gall to tell me that he is co-responsible for this? We're really getting a co-education. Stop! Stop! You were the man responsible for the soundtracks on over 100 different movies and TV shows. You wrote Moon River, and this is on your resume? Gotta go now, your loving daughter. You know what? I don't even care what's on this first minute of the show. I'm sure if we play it context-free without any commentary, we'll be just as in the dark about it, and yet it will explain a lot. I can't believe it! Men on campus! In the bookstore, on the tennis courts, snoozing in the library. I know, Sandy. It feels so good to drop a book and have someone in pants pick it up and hand it back to me. With his phone number written all over the inside cover. Yeah, I've dropped nine books already. And coming out of registration, I had a door open for me. Pardon me, little lady. Can I change that tire for you? Go, go. Well, it's not a tire, it's a jukebox. You women can't handle anything. I beg your pardon. Women are just as coordinated as men. Then how come they keep dropping their books? Oh, my gosh. I'd like to see all three of you animal house rejects in my office now. I think we need to discuss your midterm grades in the nine circles. Limbo, lust, gluttony, greed, wrath, heresy, violence, fraud, treachery. 
These three shows have as many similarities to each other as they do differences. Some of them are subtle ones, others are blatantly obvious. In the case of all three shows, they try to do what the original product did best. And yet, thanks to the time slots each of them found themselves in, they could only show off the minimal of efforts. Incidentally, in the case of all three shows, the reason they were canceled had nothing to do with the ratings. Rather, each of the shows had their own run-ins with a department in television that's as annoying as it is vital in getting a show on the air. That of the Standards and Practices Department. And when a network tries to tell a creative to clean up their act a little, that kind of interference is just begging for a ring and treachery. However, in the network's defense, it was pretty much by design. After all, the original Animal House probably wouldn't have been as popular as it was if they didn't slip in some questionable and especially lust-related content. Content that would have been impossible to put on network TV without a shit ton of censorship in doing so, resulting in each network's version of a college comedy getting severely neutered in the process, also resulting in three of the shows, including the actual authorized spinoff, being hit with more fraud and heresy charges than you'd find on a term paper at Liberty University. To say nothing of the fact that all three networks tried to strike while the iron was hot on what they thought was going to be the next big showbiz fad. They wanted to cash in on a trend, but they wound up getting swept up in their own greed. Resulting in the unprecedented move for all three networks to put the same show on at the same time. And you can't get any more gluttonous than that. Of the three shows, it is easy to say that the one that comes closest to duplicating the original is the most faithful, yet not faithful enough at the same time. ABC's Delta House? Two C's, two D's, and an F. That's a 1.2 grade average. Congratulations, you're at the top of the pledge class. NBC's Brothers and Sisters? Hello. 0.2. Fat, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life, son. But out of the three shows, this one at least went out of its way to be so much unlike the show that they were ripping off that they wound up trying too hard to be original. Meanwhile, CBS's co-ed fever has no grade point average. All courses incomplete. And I don't just mean the sliver of footage I was able to find, but also because the reaction to that show was so profoundly negative from viewers that the program was given a dubiously rare honor. That of being one of the only shows in TV history to be canceled not only after one episode, but because the episode that aired in February 1979 was billed as a special preview, it gets the even rarer distinction of being canceled before its pilot episode could even air. Never mind the fact that five of the other six shows that were produced never saw the light of day, except in Canada. But since it's American Broadcast the Countdown here, Coed Fever's incompletion makes all three shows eligible for Limbo, even though the other two shows did finish out their respective runs. All that remains is to properly expel these shows from ever setting foot into another educational establishment. And since I pretty much just blew out my throat on that Henry Mancini rant, Dean Wormer, do the honors. You're out. Finished. Expelled. I want you off this campus at 9 o'clock Monday morning. And one more for good measure. Robot House! Isn't catharsis great? The Animal House rip-off sitcoms of 1979 earned seven out of nine circles of telehell. 
In spite of what silver linings they had, these three shows combined were altogether unnecessary. And considering that we've sat through failed TV pilots, cheesy TV movies, overhyped star vehicles, Peter Boyle as a pit bull, and three Brady Bunch-related projects in the past, that statement stuns even myself. Then again, who wouldn't be pissed that a great work of comedy gets bastardized, not once, but three times, in an effort to capture what made the movie great in the first place? Your Delta Tau kind name is Pinto. Why Pinto? Why not? Pin, sir. A pledge pin on your uniform. I hate those guys. But do you think you could see your way clear to giving us just one more chance? Visit Universe Hell Studios. Ask for Babs. Next time on Telehell, the Rex of 79 continues. And since we already failed college three times, we might as well fail history too. What would you do if you could travel back in time and relive a turning point in your life? It's possible aboard the Time Express. Join me and my passengers on the Time Express, Thursday at 8, 7 Central and Mountain. Until then, welcome to Season 5. And of course... If it's not in telehell, it's not worth a damn. Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. All clips used in this program are protected under the Fair Use Doctrine of the U.S. Copyright Act of 1976, and all clips used come courtesy of their respective companies and owners. Some of the music used in this program comes courtesy of YouTube and their audio library service. Telehell is a production of Horton Road and is distributed by Libsyn. The show may be over, but you know where to find us. On social media, Twitter and Facebook, at Telehell Podcast. Want to hear some premium content? Go to patreon.com slash Podcast. And if you have any questions or comments about this show, feel free to contact us at our complaint line, telehellpodcast at gmail.com. But even more than that, please be sure to like, comment, rate, subscribe, lie to us all over the places where Telehell is streaming, including Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and many others, just by Googling Telehell. 